0: If your Bibles, go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. We're not going to rework through the first three verses. We're going to work through 4, 5, and 6 this morning. That will be our, our concentration this morning. I want to uh, say before we get going that... Uh, Um, It was a joy being able to take the week before last and spend time studying and reading and praying and uh, just asking God for direction in my own life and my family and in our church family. Um, Guys, if we if we don't go where God wants us to go, then it will not be blessed. We may think it's a blessing. There's lots of churches that go not where God wants them to go, and they sometimes see lots of people and see lots of even potentially cool things happen, but maybe it's not always the blessing of God. And what we want to strive for is faithfulness to our God. That's where we want to go. And God will bless that, and that's where we want to go. Sometimes that's hard. Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes, and in all of that, it should be joyful. But uh, we want to go where God wants us to go. And so I just uh, would encourage you. I, I know it's sound like a, maybe a broken record here, but particularly you men, that uh, you should take some time once a year to get away, to do some self-reflection, Think about your your own heart with the Lord. Spend time in prayer, asking God to reveal sin in your life, uh, and then ask Him for a plan for this year. And then, along with that, then how you might lead your family. Um, I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to do that. There is nothing in the Bible that says you have to do that. As far as getting away. But all the goals that I tried to accomplish during that time are certainly biblically mandated and required of you. So, I'm <clears throat> trying to help you do that. So, With that said, let's read Ephesians 4, 1. Then we're going to stop, or 4, 1 through 3. We're going to stop and kind of work through a few things. I have to say this. I, I, it is such a joy to be able to come in last week and just sit, Right? Just sit. I didn't have to be on the stage and have to say a word and have to preach and have to do anything. Just get to sit and be blessed. Uh, and uh, Rusty's sermon last week, you know, hit me like a ton of bricks. It was super encouraging to my heart uh, and to my walk with Jesus. So I hope it was yours as well. So with that, verse one, Paul says, "I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called." With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's go ahead and read verse 4, <coughs> 5, and 6. says, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless our time together in your Word. That you would give us clear minds, that you would let me speak with clarity. And that, Father, that not just our minds would be engaged, but our hearts would be surrendered as well. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the last couple of weeks, here we go. I'm going to kind of pick up where, I mean, we do this every week, kind of pick up where we left off. But there's a particular part of Rusty's sermon last week that he highlighted from the passage. I'm going to pick up on here in just a second, and then we're going to build off of that. But the last couple of weeks, Paul has begun, I don't know if you've picked up on this yet. If you've done Renovate Us, you would have picked up on this. One of the greatest statements concerning the doctrine of the church. One of the greatest statements concerning what we believe concerning our ecclesiology or our study of the church, our beliefs concerning the church. And so with that said, I want to say this statement uh, very bluntly, and that is this. We must get over ourselves right we're just going to start right there and we're going to pick up from there and move forward but I want to put that phrase out there right here from the very beginning even as offensive as it might be we must get over ourselves now I've heard sermons where they say well you must get over yourselves and and just kind of tell you to do that and tell you it's the right thing to do and then and then send you on your way we're not going to do that but we have to at least engage in this thought of we must get over ourselves. Because the doctrine of the church is of utmost importance. And Paul is making one of the most profound statements about the church here in these verses. Because if you study the epistles, if you study the letters to the churches, you will notice that they are greatly concerned with how we live and how we think, right? If you just... What we've said so far, be humble and, and, and so on and so forth. And you look at Colossians and, and all these letters. That there is great concern with how you and I think and how we act and how we portray the good news of Jesus and so on and so forth. But what's interesting is that if you study the epistles, we're never addressed as mere individuals. We're never addressed as just as if the writer's writing to you and to you alone. We're always addressed as members of one another. We're always addressed as people, a part of the local church, people a part of that kind of context. We're never engaged as just you and 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 you by yourself. It's never just that. We talked about a few weeks ago how we begin with ourselves. Often we often. Circulate and rotate everything around and orbit everything around kind of us. Very self oriented. We put ourselves at the center of everything. We think about life in terms of how it relates to us. Here are a few of the examples I gave a few weeks ago. We think in terms of how does, you know, how does my kid's behavior reflect on me? Or how is this job change going to impact me? Or That person made me feel bad when they didn't say hi to me. It's about me. What is best for my day? What do I need to do in order to accomplish my agenda? Or when we go to the Scriptures, we go to the Scriptures going, all right. what's the little cool thing that I can get out of the Scriptures for me today? Or where I'm kind of driving at here a little bit is this. Like when the Scriptures tell you and I to be humble, it's not just about you being humble. It's about your humility and how that relates to the body and to, to, to displaying the unity of the body amongst the lost world. So it's not just about you. It's not just about even you and the body. It's about God's kingdom and God's display and ultimately about His glory. It's, it's not oriented around you. You being humble is not about just you being humble you being patient it's not just about you being patient and so if you walk away from this passage or any passage for that matter going okay well i just need to do this 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 and you know and everything will be good and you're missing the point but it's easy for us to go day by day or even week by week only thinking about living in relation to ourselves guys even like you have kids and a bunch of them like i was just faced this past week with living or this past weekend living oriented around myself. I just found myself, particularly on Saturday, if you know anything about me, like I am used to being like super productive, getting lots of things done and having a list of things I want to do and and I just found myself Saturday just going like two things. One, I just don't have the energy to do it today, I'm tired. (laughs) Like and second of all, like I've got four little kids. That need Dad. How am I going to do this? Because there's also things that I need to do for them that doesn't relate necessarily to them. and how do I but I found myself in this kind of stupor, if you will, because I was just about me. like I was thinking about everything that day in orientation and orbiting around me. And you see, you realize, I want you to see this is the source of most of our ills and our problems. Most of our struggles this is the source is that we just can't get over ourselves. We are I'm going to give you a list of some examples. We are too hip on ourselves. We are too subjective and unclear. We overestimate our own importance. We hold ourselves too high. You ever notice that when you're comparing yourself to someone else? Like most of us in here are going to walk away feeling better about ourselves s- magically, right? I mean, it could be like Billy Graham, and you're like, yeah, you know, you know, he was like this. I- I'm like this, right? I mean, maybe not Billy Graham, but <laughs> but for the most part, most of you are going to do that. Or you strategically choose the ones in which you know you will outrank them at the end of your conversation in your little head. We hold ourselves too high. We assume too much good of ourselves. Or this, we trust our opinions way too high. Another couple thoughts. You know, you know why many of us were probably depressed one day this past week? It's because all of your focus was oriented around making you happy. Making you feel good for that moment. It was about you. That's just selfishness. That's self-orientation. It's just pride. Now, I I, I said most, so I'm leaving an exception in there. Or maybe you know why you got angry yesterday or the day before? Because you're so focused on what you wanted. I got angry with my kids yesterday and had to apologize to my son last night and I didn't get to... Apologize to Hayden because Hayden was asleep before we got done praying uh, together. So, listen, my prayers aren't that long, okay? Not with them. (laughs) I know what you're thinking. Like, your prayers put him to sleep. No, 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 no. The prayers are like, with them, are like maybe 60 seconds, if that. Like, it's just, they just don't last. And so, anyway, so we had our time in the Word together, and then we were praying together. And Mr. Henry, as you can hear him back there, is flipping out right now. Uh, (laughs) Wow! Uh, So Hayden is asleep before I get done praying. So I go to Chapman and I and I apologize to him. And just he, this is just marvelous to me. I just have to say this: like the quickness in his forgiveness to me, and his hug. Like I didn't ask him, "Will you come give me a hug?" Like, he just sits up and gives his daddy a hug. Like, he doesn't even say, I, I forgive you, Dad. He just sits up and just gives me a hug and kisses me on the side of my face. And I'm just like, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope that I can return such forgiveness and graciousness to him. But it was about me. I was angry because I was being inconvenienced. My, well, that moment was oriented around me. And then I took it out on my kids. Instead, here's what we have to think. Instead, we are seeing in the Scriptures as a whole, not just the epistles, as not primarily as individuals, but primarily as an ecclesia, a gathering of people, a gathering of God's people, a people under God, a collection of people, All throughout Scripture, from beginning to end, has been about a people, not a person. I'm going to caveat that in a second before you start calling me a heretic. It's not been primarily about a person. It's been primarily about a people. The only time it's ever ultimately about a person is the person Jesus Christ. That's the only time. And even Him, He's seen in the midst of the Trinity. Every other time, it's about a people. Even Adam and Eve, their command was to go multiply and spread God's image with what? People. That they would make a people. That Adam and Eve would go forth and make a people. A people that would display the image of God. So as God's giving commands to Adam and Eve, it's not just about Adam and Eve, but it's about God's people. Noah. Noah was to do the same thing. Abraham. Abraham was, God was going to multiply his seed and make a people for himself. And this is what Paul has been doing since the beginning of Ephesians. It's been about a people, about a chosen people. And he has talked about this like you're no longer Jew or Gentile, but a new people. One that is found, this new people is founded and you find currently in one person, Jesus So it's about a people unified under the lordship of Jesus. I want to to kind of start to drive us down a little bit closer here, a little bit more narrowed. Guys, it's about a spiritual objective reality of unity. I'm going to define this as we go. A spiritual objective reality of unity that we are to maintain then in a physical, subjective experience, right? So, it's this people that are supposed to, in a very subjective, physical realm, maintain unity because it's a part of something that's spiritual and objective and in complete reality. We are to pursue and maintain this unity in our experience here. And what I mean here's what I mean by subjective. You know what I mean by objective and subjective. Subjective would be this: is that in applying that to the experience of our unity, is that it's not always going to be clear cut and perfect. Our unity is not going to always be like even kill solid. It's that is. Objective unity, like that's the picture perfect, that is solid, that never wavers, that is unity. Now, ours is going to be more subjective than that, and it's going to be very experienced. There will be ups and downs, and there should be a war for it. And so, the question I think we have to ask is this What is the objective grounds for our subjective experience? What is the objective grounds? For our subjective experience. So what is the basis for our experience? What do we look to? If, if ours is going to be somewhat subjective, it's going to be somewhat up and down, what do we look to? What, where do we find the basis for that, the support for that, the display of that, the, the information, if you will, that we need for this experience? See, we are called to walk together in a manner worthy of our calling the only manner worthy of a calling is that manner of walking that maintains unity. Okay? If you want a kind of big thought here. The only manner worthy of a calling is that which maintains unity. So humility, gentleness, patience, etc. All aid in maintaining unity. But what is the objective grounds for that unity? What is it that demands unity from us? What is it that displays unity for us? That would be a couple big questions we're going to answer today. What is it that demands unity of us? And what is it that displays unity for us? And this is what Paul is going to answer next in verses 4, 5, and 6. You see, there is a spiritual objective reality that grounds is the basis for our subjective experience of unity. Let me say this one last thought before we move on. <coughs> our unity is not at the expense of just anything. Unity does not come from finding the lowest common denominator. You ever, ever heard that idea? We just got to find the lowest common thing we have in, you know, the lowest common Thing we have and the smallest thing we have in common and, and we'll just build unity off of that. Unity does not come from removing doctrine and finding the, the lowest amount of doctrine that we can find that we all agree on and then we can be unified going forward. Unity does not come from finding similar interests. Unity does not come from avoiding the discussion of hard topics and hard things that offend even. Guys, unity comes from the reality of something unified beyond our control. Let me say that again. Unity comes from the reality of something unified beyond our control. Let's read in 4, 5, and 6. He says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Listen, church. Unity does not come from having the coolest vision statement. It doesn't come from having the coolest church building. It doesn't come from taking all of our beliefs and whittling them down to one, two, and three of our primary thoughts and beliefs and and then building unity off of that. No, unity comes from something much more beyond anything like that. And so the objective ground for our experience of unity is the God who is one. That is the ground of our unity, is the God who is one. And we're going to explore that in the next few moments. But here, listen to me, Paul gives the objective ground in reality. So this the the like God who is one, that's reality. That is, that is true, that is objective, it doesn't change, it doesn't waver, it's clear cut, it's solid, it's there. That truth is the ground for our experience in pursuit of unity. The unity of the Spirit that we should be so diligent for, right? That's what we're talking about here. Unity in the Spirit. We should be so diligent for this is based on a given objective unity outside of us. Outside of us. Outside of what we experience here. There is this unified God and His plan and such that is the basis that doesn't change there's the basis for us. Guys, one this one that we have nothing, there's a unity out there that of something that we have nothing to do with creating or defining. We can't change it. Now, this is important. Like if we start thinking about our impact and our lack of unity and our lack of, of, of being unified in the spirit and what that looks like and what that does, guys, there, there is a unity. Beyond us, that we have no impact on whatsoever. And this is the objective foundation of our efforts to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Because here's something to worship over this objective grounds of our unity is not something that is fragile or vulnerable, it doesn't change when ours might go up and down and waver from one side to the other and we might be a little disunified in one season, a little unified better in another season. The unity of the Father doesn't change. It is steady. Guys, this objective reality rests on the oneness of God, the oneness of faith, the oneness of baptism, the oneness of the body. These things are one no matter what you or I do. They are, let's put it this way, they are fixed realities. There is only one faith. There is only one set of right beliefs. There is only one baptism. There's one baptism. That's a fixed reality. There's one God. It is a fixed reality. Nothing we do, say, believe, or whatever else we might conjure up, can change that reality. Someone's right, someone's wrong when it comes to beliefs. Someone's right and someone's wrong when it comes to multiple gods. There is one God. And our task is to walk worthy of this fixed reality. Do you see that? Our job is to walk worthy of this fixed reality this is the basis for the practical admonitions and particularly for the unity that he is encouraging us to pursue without this guys, we have no hope of doing what paul is talking about here you see the church is a reflection of the trinity The community and unity of the body reflects either something true of the God who is three in one, or it reflects something that is false of the God who is three in one. And it's interesting because Paul Paul brings in the Trinity right here in these next couple verses. See, the first three pieces are concerning the Holy Spirit. The second three are concerning Jesus Christ. And then the last part he's going to address is, a summary of all the unities in itself, and that being the Father. Okay, seeing this and understanding the, this unity of God is the only way you will ever grasp unity anywhere, let alone the church. <coughs> it's the only way, like as, a, as a, another implication of this, is the only way you're going to find unity in your marriage is going to be To look and know and behold the Trinity. To behold the God who is one. The only way you're going to have unity in your family with your kids is to help them and yourself see the God who is one. And I would encourage you fathers, or if you're a single mother, that you have a responsibility to shepherd your family to unity. And you will never do so if you're not eagerly growing and knowing and loving the God who is three in one. won't do it. It won't happen. Your unity will be frail and vulnerable and weak and it'd be wrong. Just period. You want unity in these places? Particularly you men, and this is not, men, this is not just like, oh, I, I, I need to grow and feeling good about God. That's not what I'm talking about. Like, r- read the scriptures and know the God who is one, who is three in one. You men, you have a responsibility to lead your wife to unity with you. And you cannot do that by watching more TV or helping your kids get, kids get better at sports. You would lead them to unity by teaching them and showing them the God who is one. And you can't teach and show someone something that you don't know yourself. You must sit at the feet of Jesus and be taught about the unity of the God who is three in one. With that, I would say this. Paul would have us behold the God who is unified. The God who is three in one. The God of oneness. Paul would have us behold that God. I want to give you three things here. I want to kind of flesh each one of these out. But three things that would encourage us towards unity. If we're going to think about if, my, if our pursuit of unity here is based on a greater reality that's not subject to our frailty and sinfulness, then we need to, what would be right is then to take a look at that and go, all right, so if that's the basis for my experience here, then I should get to know that, right? I mean, that makes sense. Everyone makes sense, right? Yes? Shake your heads? Yeah. Like, we should get to know that, right? That's what Paul's going to do. That's what Paul's doing here for us. And the first one is this Be unified as you confess one Spirit and this Spirit's work or His work. Be unified as you confess one Spirit and His work. (laughs) Listen, I, I know not everyone here is married. You know. We have lots of people who are married. We have people who want to be married. We have people, you know, all in different places. But I want to encourage you, there's lots of parallel values here for marriage as well. I mean, God designed it that way. But primarily what we're talking about is unity within the church. We'll get to the marriage stuff later in chapter 5. But for right now, be unified as you confess one spirit and his work. How will we be unified as a church? Is confessing these things together, believing these things together, looking to these things for a model and a display of unity, beholding these things together. So be unified as you confess, as you behold, as you delight in, as you believe convictionally one spirit and his work. He says there in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. So, first of all, there's one body. What's he saying? I think he reaches back here into chapter 2, verse 13 through 22. You can go look at those verses later. But in 13 through 22, you see Christ's creation of one new human being and one body of the church. So you see this is where he's he's taking Jews and Gentiles and creating a brand new person. How does he do this? Again, if you go back and read those verses, he does this through his death on the cross. That we die and are born again in His likeness and united as one new people. I also want you to notice this at this point. That there is a reality here that is also beyond our control. That is that is a fixed reality. And that is there is one body. Now we might be in a world where lots of people claim to be Christians, but there is one body. What I mean by that, there's people. What I mean by that is that there are people who claim to be Christians that are not part of that body, but it doesn't impact that body in the sense that that one body is a fixed reality and it's a current reality. There's a sense in which it is already an objective reality this unity that we speak of in the fact that there is one body. He also says this, there's one spirit. There's one spirit. Paul says that we have, in chapter 2 verse 18, says that we have access to God in one spirit. Can can you see how practically if you and I try to like access God, and we're trying to do it on our own accord or with our own power or with our own, you know, list of righteousness that we've somehow think we've created, and how that might bring disunity in the body, as opposed to we're all seeking access to God through the Spirit. What does that do? That helps us recognize our humility because I, I can't access God on my own. It has to be through the spirit, and so just the practice. Can you see how the unity of that practically works itself out? Paul is saying we should keep the church fastened together with peace because of what God has done for us both, Jews and Gentiles, by uniting us together and giving us what? What's he give us? He gives us a spiritual presence. We have one spirit. Like our unitedness or our lack of being unified is a reflection on the presence of God that He has given to us, this one Spirit. So there's one one body, one Spirit. He says this, there is one hope. There is one hope. Let's talk about this one hope for a little bit longer than I did the last two points, but there is one hope. Paul is making The future element of God's call, follow me here, he's making that explicit. The future element of God's call, so he called us to this hope, he's making that explicit. Now what were his readers called to? I want to refresh your memory here in Ephesians. They're called to this, verse 4 of chapter 1, to be holy and blameless before him. If you read Romans 8, verse 29 we are called to be conformed to the image of His Son. If you read 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that this will occur when we see the glorified Christ, that this holiness and blamelessness will come to complete objective reality when we see the glorified Christ. But we are called to this. Now this calling, though, was accompanied by something very important. It was accompanied by hope. This calling is accompanied by hope. What I mean by that is that hope is an integral part of God's calling. It's a necessary part of God's calling. Guys, a trust in the good news that God has included them in His people, that He's included us as His people and reconciled us to Himself, is a trust that we cannot see, but a necessary trust. And guys, it is the conviction, this hope is the conviction that one day, what we cannot see now, but can only see with our hearts, will be concrete and visible, will be the experience for all time, and that is what? What is this hope to which we are called to? Look at chapter 2, verse 7. In Him we have redemption, the blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us upon us in all wisdom and insight making unto us the mystery of his will he's going to unite all these things together and ultimately he is going to show us make us objects of the surpassing wealth of his grace He's going to make us objects who will receive the surpassing wealth of His grace. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Or chapter, look at verse 6. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that what? in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's what we're called. That's the hope that accompanies the call, that we would become the objects receiving the surpassing wealth of His grace, displayed to us in kindness. Right? Do you do understand what's going on here? Prior to God's work, we had no hope. Like do, do you, I, I know in America, like where we have this thing called the American Dream, we all had hope, right? I mean. Mr. Kasich made that clear the other night. Like, we just all got to have, we all can be president, you know, someday, right? Have you ever done the math? Like, don't ever tell your kids, like, they can just be president if they want to. Like, have you done the math? It's like three and with, like, ten zeros. Like, you have a greater chance of becoming an NFL star than becoming the president of the United States. The American dream is just crazy. There is no hope there. The hope comes from the calling of God. And our hope is that one day, one day, we would be without this fleshly sin and would be unified in the presence of God as objects receiving His, the wealth of His grace. But before that, we had no hope. We were without God in the world, he tells us in chapter 2. That we were powerless before Satan's dominion. And powerless before our own fallen flesh and mind. Powerless before the wrath of God, whom we had disobeyed. That we were separated from God's people. That we were separated from God's people whom God had worked to rescue. But now, because of the blood of Christ, the blood that was shed on the cross... God has rescued them and rescued us from this desperate situation by making us part of His people and reconciling us to Himself. We now have hope. Now this hope is going to be a a big part. I want to talk about in a little bit about how this hope plays into our unity. So just hold on to that thought for a second. The second big thought underneath here is that you must be unified or be unified as you confess one Lord and His salvation. Be unified as you confess one Lord and His salvation. Now here's the deal. Before I go any further, many of you grew up in churches where you got one salvation, right? So we all believe that Jesus Christ is the way, right? I mean, most of us grew up in churches that that's the case. Jesus Christ is the way to heaven. And the conversation stopped there. So, then, But here's the deal. The conversation should have never stopped there. As you live throughout the week, where do you practically place the hope of your salvation? So on Tuesday when your whole world is wrecked because your boss said a mean thought to you, where are you placing your salvation at that moment? Where are you telling your kids, when you come home and you're angry, you're frustrated, and you're being controlled in that moment by the thoughts and the words of your boss, where are you telling your kids your hope is placed? Your salvation is placed. You're teaching them that it's placed in your boss or what other people say. So the issue is the the conversation. If we're going to be unified then, we're going to be unified, then we have to get over ourselves and we have to confess that Jesus is Lord and that it is only salvation found in Him and then repent together when we display to each other salvation found in something else other than Jesus Christ. So it's not just we get together, okay, it's cute, it's Jesus Christ, that's who we love and and that's His salvation. Practically, day in, day out, what are we showing each other that we believe to be the salvation of our souls? The place where we find hope and fulfillment and joy, satisfaction. You can see where if, our, if, our, if we're not confessing daily, moment by moment, that Jesus is Lord and salvation is only found in Him, you can see then where we start confessing different salvations, how our unity would start to go right like this. But if we're daily, moment by moment, all helping each other confess Jesus as Lord, there is one God, that there is one salvation. And I repent of these other things, how our unity would just grow and grow and grow. So with that, verse 5, he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Guys, the repetition of one, as Rusty referred to last week, like, Paul's desire here is to show us singularity. It's to show us oneness. That there's just this one. That's it. Nothing else. So here he says there's one Lord. Because This is the same Lord whom Paul serves as a prisoner. Both a prisoner spiritually and a prisoner physically. And so when you so go back to the example of the boss who said the words, when you come home and you're being controlled by the words of your boss, your kids, watch that. Who are you a prisoner to in those moments? Is it a prisoner to Jesus Christ? Or are you a prisoner to your boss? Because that's who you're telling your kids is the salvation for you in that moment. It's your boss. But this one Lord is the one who stands at the center of God's purposes for the universe, right? The one He's going to unite all things and bring Jesus to the forefront as the point of it all. (laughs) This one Lord is enthroned at God's right hand with every other lordship beneath His feet. You know, this title, One Lord, if you want to study like Old Testament and language, the Lord phrase in the Old Testament is used most often of God, God the Father. And what's he doing here? Paul is equating Jesus with the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, saying this is, he is God. We have one Lord. He's referring to Jesus, but he's saying that this one Lord is God. Then Paul goes on, he says, one faith. What's he mean by one faith? There's debate on the interpretation of this one faith. Does he mean like one belief in Jesus? Or does he mean like a body of doctrine? A body of beliefs? Okay? I think he means the latter. I think he means the latter. Because I think he's going to pick up on the confession thing in the next phrase. But the one faith here, I think he's referring to a body of doctrine that all Christians believe. A set of beliefs, like there is one set of beliefs. You guys understand that there's not just one uh, statement of faith that's, you know, got like ten things in it, right? And then everything else is just whatever you want to believe. No, like there's one, and it's all-encompassing. It includes every belief there is to be had. There's one. There's one set that's right. Our goal should be to, to discover and learn that one set that is right? But I think that so I, and how how do we get to that? I, I think if you look at chapter four, verse twenty three. So if you we're gonna get here later, maybe you know, next year or something like that. But look at verse twenty three, he says, uh, chapter four, I've got the wrong verse here, I think. Chapter four, verse twenty three. Yeah, that's the wrong verse. Look at verse eleven chapter 4, verse 11. So this, And he gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to the mature man and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of God. All that he's talking about so that we would not be tossed to and fro with waves that carried about with every wind of, verse 14, that's what I was looking for. With every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth. So he's going to go on here in a few moments to talk about how God has given us teachers and pastors and evangelists to help us be what? To help us know the one faith. So I don't think Paul's talking about this, just this confession or just this belief in Jesus. I think he's talking about this one faith. So here's the deal. You want Unity. Do you want unity? You want unity in your marriage? You want unity with your kids? You want unity? Certainly here in the church, there has to be a singularity of doctrine. There has to be a, a unity of beliefs. Guys, you, are, you want to have a good marriage? Go learn and believe the right things concerning God. But don't just believe, believe the right, like the right things. Top five things. Pursue unity in all of those things. All of those beliefs. All of those doctrines that can be had. Seek to know them, believe them, love them, hold them, and hold them together. It's the same thing in the church. It's the same thing here. Rusty and I, as elders together, have so much unity. Why? Because there's singularity of doctrine, and it goes way beyond just basic beliefs. It goes way beyond that. We're actually working on right now, kind of in the background, an elder statement of faith. It'll be the set of doctrines that goes way beyond what our basic beliefs are for our church that us as elders and any future elders would have to adhere, adhere to that. Why? So there can be unity among the elders. Why? So there can be unity displayed of the Trinity. Why? So that we would be unified as people. One faith going on. One baptism. This is rich with echoes from 1 Corinthians 12. I'd encourage you to read that later. But verse 13, he says this. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now what's he mean by one baptism? Again, Different interpretations of this passage: "Someone's right and someone's wrong." Well, it's probably someone's right and a lot of people are wrong. We'll put it that way. I think it's best to understand baptism here as this: as metaphorical, but not completely excluding physical baptism. Let me say that again. I think it's best to understand as metaphorical, but not completely leaving out physical baptism. So I don't think he's talking about spirit baptism here. I don't think he's talking about uh, water baptism alone. Paul's assumption, you got to understand this, Paul's assumption coming into this passage is that they're teaching water baptism. I think that's his assumption. I think it's best to think of this simple reference to baptism. Here you go. As referring to the whole process of conversion, summarized by reference to a visible ritual. Let me say it again. I think it's best to think of this simple reference to baptism as referring to the whole process of conversion, summarized by the reference to a visible ritual. It symbolized, this visible ritual symbolized the death and resurrection of the believer with Christ. So if we understand the symbol of baptism, that's what it represents. The ritual was an important symbol of this process, but it was not nearly as important as the spiritual reality that it signified. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. I don't think Paul would just be, yes, there's one water baptism. I mean, think about what he's talking about here. He's talking about, this grand one faith, this one God, this one Lord, and oh yeah, there's one way to be baptized. Like, I don't, like, what? No, no, he's speaking of, there's grand realities. There's one body of all time. There's one God over all. And, and, and by the way, you should be dunked in water. Water. Paul is, there's one baptism, there is one means of salvation. There is one way to be redeemed. There is one way for conversion. And that is to be, that is to die with Christ and to be resurrected with Christ. That's the means of salvation. That is the means to your hope. That is the means to your eternity. And this is what Paul means by there is one baptism. Again, you see how we can be disunified or unified based upon our understanding of one salvation, one means of conversion. Third, be unified as you confess one Father and his sovereignty. Be unified as you confess one Father and his sovereignty. Verse 6. One God and Father over, a Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We have one God sovereign over all. That's what Paul's saying here. Now, this is the climax of the preface to the second half of the letter. All right, so it's important, I think, for you to see that. Hmm. We have the preface going into, he's just kind of setting the stage for what he's going to talk about. And here's the climax. Here's the moment. And he says that he is father over all things. What does this do? Why is this important to see this climax here? Because this ties together nicely with the important theme of what? If he is sovereign over all things, what's Paul been telling us God's goal and plan is to do? is to unite all things in Christ. How is he to unite all things in Christ if he is not sovereign over all things? He'd have no means by which to unite all things. But he is sovereign over all things. Ephesians 1, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. How can God do this if he is not sovereign over all things? And Paul is helping us see this that the means by which God is going to accomplish everything and has accomplished everything in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is because there is this God who is one, who has one plan, and He is sovereign over all. Chapter 3, verse 9, He says, And to bring to light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things? He created all things. So, so here we go. He is over all in the sense that he created everything and named all the tribes of the universe and subjected everything to Jesus Christ. He is overall in that sense. He is through and in all in the sense that he is summing up all things in Christ and works all things to accomplish his will. So he has created everything and works intentionally through and in all things to accomplish His intended goal for the universe He created. Let me say that again. That's such a loaded statement. He has created everything and works intentionally through and in all things to accomplish His intended goal for the universe that He created. I was having a conversation this past week with someone, and I said, look, a uh, hair does not fall from your head without God knowing it. Why? Because he was sovereign over that hair falling from your head. It says he is sovereign over all things and works through and in all things to accomplish what? The uniting of all things in Jesus. There's no way he could do that without being sovereign over all. And the beautiful thing of all this is that the church, or one of the beautiful things, is that the church occupies a critical place in this divine plan and so must itself be unified. If we be a part of that, we have to have oneness. You know, the uniqueness of God and His plan for the unity of the universe should be reflected in practical ways in the unity of believers with one another. Guys, see, if God is going to unite all things so that Jesus comes forth as the point, that begins in here. That begins with the body. And then what we're trying to talk about right now is how then do we get unified? We get unified by knowing the God who is one. One. And then the question is how do you get to know the God who is one? You've got to read your Bible. You've got to read your Bible. You've got to know that God has revealed Himself as the God who is one through the Scriptures. We have to know Him through the Scriptures. So, we'll close with three implications of God's oneness. I will to give you three implications, three things that are implied by this passage. I think from these implications, you can derive great applications. The three implications of God's oneness the first one is this spiritual unity births practical unity. Spiritual unity births practical unity. Spiritual unity births practically. Guys, the cause for outward oneness is inner oneness. I know I sound like you know someone off of Oprah Winfrey or something like that, or like Rob Bell or some crazy coup. Sounds like a Joel Osteen statement. Gotta be one with yourself. No. The cause for outward oneness is inner oneness. Guys, practical oneness is based on spiritual oneness. Guys, it has nothing to do with skin color, has nothing to do with age, has nothing to do with your past other than the fact that you were lost and now found. Hey. Okay? If if you're unified on any of those things, they're not the right thing. They're superficial. They're fading. Our walking in a manner worthy which leads to unity is motivated by the oneness and unity of God, this spiritual reality. So if we want to be unified physically in this experience, then we have to be unified in spiritual reality. How do we do it? We we know the God who is one. We continually grow in knowing the God who is one. Guys, different hopes, so remember the conversation on the hope thing? Different hopes breed disunity. If we're hoping in different things, it will bring about disunity. Listen to this for a second. Those who do concurrently struggle with unity, and those who will struggle with unity in the future. Let me speak to you for a moment. There will be no unity for you if you are not seeking to know the God who is one. It just it won't happen. So, as, as I look around our church here, those people who are most unified are the ones who are seeking hard after God. They are. And I praise God for that that's, that's lots. But the people who struggle to be unified in that, I would say most often, are not seeking hard after the God who is one. I, I know that that might be really offensive, and I don't mean it to be offensive. What I mean for it is just to maybe wake some of us up. Guys, back to the marriage thing. If you want to be unified in your marriage, you've got to be unified in knowing the God who is one. Otherwise, your unity certainly won't withstand time. It won't withstand the pressures of life. But I want to encourage on the flip side, those, those who are following hard after God, I want to encourage you with this your role is to bring others into that unity. It's not just to be, okay, well, yeah, yeah, we're unified in here and this is cool and sweet. No, your role, one of your roles is to bring people into that unity. The spiritual unity births practical unity. And let me say this last statement too. We want to be the kind of church where people can come into that unity, Right? It's not good or healthy or God-honoring when you have this like tight little knit of unified people, but no one can actually get into that. That's not right. That's not the gospel. So I want to make sure we're careful that we're always looking outward, bringing people into that. I'll leave it there. Second implication is that the path to greater unity is clearer and more tightly held beliefs. What Paul's saying here: You want to be unified? Here's how to be unified: There is one of all these things, and confess the oneness of all these things. Let me say one more statement on the spiritual unity versus practical unity. I just want to make sure I'm clear that if you don't feel unified, that it's not necessarily because you're not following hard after God, okay? I, I just want, I want to make sure I leave room that there are, I think, exceptions to that, okay? But I think, for the most part, like if this is what Paul's saying here. Like Unity comes from knowing this God who is one and growing and knowing this God who is one. So what that means, then, is that if we're not unified with these that group of people, then it's probably because we're not growing and knowing the God who is one. That doesn't mean that's without exception. And you could be new coming into that or just trying to work your way around and go, okay, how do I orient and get into that? And There's room for that, okay? I, I want to make sure you understand that. All right, so the path to greater unity is clearer, and more tightly held beliefs. Guys, the, the motifs of oneness here concerning God, right, this oneness, are very uh, declarative. Like it, he's making a declaration that these things are reality, in reality, are one. But if you study the language, they also have the force of an appeal. Like they're appealing to this oneness for us to do something about it. When Paul intends the character of God and the oneness of His plan to have the force or appeal to our unity. Knowing the calling to which we've been called, that this would have an appeal. Again, Paul is not speaking of unity at at any price in which the fundamental truths of the gospel are, are removed. He's talking about a unity based on these rightly held beliefs. And the third implication is this. You cannot have hope for the future apart from experiencing it within the unified body now. I want to drive this point a little hard. Okay? Get your seatbelts on. All right, here we go. You cannot have hope for the future apart from experiencing it within the unified body now. What do I mean by that? What's the hope for the future? A hope for eternity with Christ. A hope to, to be the object of God's unsurpassed display and giving of His, the wealth of His grace to us. There is no hope for that apart from experiencing within the body now. So what I mean by that is that you have to, There's an experiencing of that now if there is to be any hope of it in the future. So the hope is that we would experience, again, the surpassing wealth of His grace for eternity. The reality is, if you really desire that and know what that means, then you will seek it here. Because we get a taste of that here. A taste of the surpassing wealth of His grace as we participate in the spiritual reality of unity with each other and Christ now in a physical way. Right, so when he talks about this like being one body, what he's saying is that this is already a reality. This is already something that's there. This one body. And what's he mean by that? One body that's currently existing on the earth. This one body that exists in heaven. Not two separate bodies, but one body. It's in two places. It's both here and it's there. It's already a reality. Now think about that. When we participate in unity with the local body here, we're in a very real way participating in unity with the one body of all time, which would include all of the ones who have gone before us and now sit at the feet of Christ. This one body that sits in heaven and worships God and enjoys His presence and is now experiencing the hope that they had on earth of the surpassing wealth of His grace shown to them in kindness. We get to be a part of that now. Now. This is where you and I have to get over ourselves or destroy our own kingdom. Because it's not about me alone. It's about us in Him. Enjoying unity now is a taste of a greater eternal reality. And notice the objective reality of the unity in this text. He says this, eager to maintain, right? Verse 3, Rusty preached on it last week. We're eager to maintain. What do you maintain? Like, he's not saying eager to create unity. Eager to maintain unity. Eager to keep intact the unity that God has already done. And then again, he says there is one body. We're not creating this. Paul is telling us that there is unity of the body and that it's beyond our experience here. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 18 through 19. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's saying you're already members of this household. And it's in Christ that we get to experience this. It's us together that we get to experience this and the fellow citizens and the saints. Listen, Listen, here's what I want to drive home. You don't get to experience this reality just in your home. You don't get to experience this reality just by yourself. You don't get to just experience this by touching and going and kind of doing your own thing. You experience this greater reality, this eternal reality here and now through the body. One of the things we're going to talk about in the weeks to come is it's through diversity in the body. Like we are very different. We get to experience this greater reality in the body. Because when we live in unity... Practically and physically, we're in a very real sense experiencing the unity of all the saints of all time, including those in the presence of the Heavenly Father right now. Guys, we have such small hopes and visions. Some of you want to be unified so that you can have some friends. Not a bad thing, but that's a small vision. That's a small hope. Because I want to be unified with you so that I can taste heaven. That's why I want to be unified. That's why we should want to be unified. So we can taste a bit of the hope that we have coming. And if that doesn't like wake you up, I don't know what's going to. Right? We have to taste. We have to taste a bit of heaven. So we began today thinking about this idea we got to get over ourselves if we are going to seek unity. But it's hard for us to get over ourselves because we're so captivated by everything that we are. Just as Satan saw himself as the most beautiful angel and worshipped himself, so do we ourselves see ourselves as beautiful, as wonderful creations. But here's what Paul does. He reminds us, "As you were called to be holy and blameless, that you were given a hope To be the chief grace receivers of God, both now and for eternity. And this calling and hope was made a reality in Christ. The only blameless one. The only holy one. And God has made a people for himself through this one person, Christ. Guys, it's not about just you or just me, but it's about us in him. It's about us in Christ. So Paul, how do we get past the struggle of maintaining our own little kingdom so that we might be unified with the body and the spirit and so display God's glory? How does Paul do that? Paul's saying, you've got to be humble, be patient, be gentle. What are you saying? Get over yourself. How does Paul help us do that? There is one spirit. There is one spirit body. There is one Lord. There is one baptism. There is one faith. There is one Father who is sovereign over all. What's Paul saying? He's saying, look to Him. Be captivated by this one God, with this one faith, with this one baptism should repent of seeking our own kingdom and seek first, what? The kingdom of God. We do this eagerly seeking to maintain unity in the body. And we do this by beholding the glory of the God who is one. You know, the objective reality of God's unity in His personhood, His plan and His actions is the provider and the motivator of our subjective experience of reality here and now. We want to be unified. We look to the God who is one. We leave you with this quote from Dr. Jones, Dr. Lloyd Jones, says this, "The moments the moments we begin to see more clearly the beauty of the Trinity, we are transported out of our gloomy and self-destructive self-orientation and placed face to face with the glorious God who is 3." in one. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we continue in worshipping you this morning, I pray that we would all, that every single one of us here would be challenged to follow hard after knowing the God who is three in one. And that we would desire unity that's not based on anything that is fading in this world like age, or preferences, or skin color, or socioeconomic status, or whatever the case is. And that we would seek unity that has eternal benefits, eternal consequence, and eternal power to keep us unified. And Father, we give you praise for that, and Father, I just ask that, that you would grant that even in this place, even today, that you would grant us unity. Grant us oneness of spirit and body and these things. Help us to eagerly maintain this. And Father, we give you praise for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray.